0: Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is My 70s TV Childhood. Welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood. It's great to have you here. As regular listeners will know, we are a podcast dedicated to celebrating what it was like to grow up as a child in 1970s Britain, and the central part that television played in our and our families' lives back then. I hope you all enjoyed our new quiz last week. You'll be able to tune into another quiz next week, and I'll be telling you about how everyone's got on, all the comments I've had, and also, very importantly, the answer to our bonus question. So don't forget to listen and try and challenge your family and friends to join in and see whose knowledge of 1970s TV is the best. In a change to our advertised programme, I've always wanted to say that, you know. This episode of our podcast focuses on the recent news that legendary, and I really mean that this time, TV chat show host Michael Parkinson has passed away. Now, here at My 70s TV Childhood Towers, we share the general sadness at the great man's passing, but in common with most of the rest of the British media, we can't let this go unnoticed. Michael Parkinson was born in Cudworth, a mining community near Barnsley on the 28th of March, 1935. His parents, Jack and Frieda, always wanted him to avoid having to go down the pit, in this case, Grimethorpe Colliery, which I always associate with his famous brass band, so encouraged him to read lots of books, watch lots of films at the cinema, and to work hard at school. All of this paid off when the young Michael passed his 11 plus and went to Barnsley Grammar School with a scholarship. He didn't distinguish himself academically at school. In fact, he left with only two O-levels in English and Art, but did manage to get a job as a trainee reporter on a South Yorkshire newspaper. It's a bit hard for us now, I think, to imagine Parkey tracing round to village fêtes and school plays and all of the other exciting events of Barnsley and the surrounding areas, but it allowed him to cut his journalistic teeth and then to move on to bigger and better things. It also gave him time to develop his approach to getting people to open up to him. I'm sure that the matrons of the South Yorkshire WI meetings I'm sure he went to wouldn't put up with any nonsense, which probably made them probably more difficult than subjects to interview than some of his more famous guests in the future. Like all young men at the time, he was called up for national service in the Royal Army pay Corps, where he was soon commissioned and ended up as a captain. He also acted as a press liaison officer during the Suez Crisis, which must have been quite an experience for a young man. What this did do, however, was fuel his ambition for something bigger than the local press in South Yorkshire. In his autobiography, he wrote, I wanted to be them. It was no good going home and covering local bingo winners. So, once he was demobbed, he moved on to work at the Manchester Guardian and then the Daily Express, and ended up in my neck of the woods in the northwest, working as a TV news presenter on Granada, presenting features and also presenting a late-night film review show, Cinema, before he got his big break on the BBC. Apparently, when he left Granada to head to The Smoke, as I believe people used to call London, although I've actually only ever heard Mike Baldwin in Coronation Street use that term, he handed his colleagues a key to his locked desk drawer. And after he'd gone, his colleagues opened up the desk and found lots of books of blank restaurant and hotel receipts, which clearly he'd been keeping in reserve for his expense claims. The Parkinson bequest, as it became known, kept the TV journalists in Clover for many years after. In July 1971, Parkinson, the TV show, hit our screens and was to remain a fixture in the BBC's late-night Saturday lineup for more than a decade. My own awareness of Michael Parkinson grew gradually, As I've mentioned before on this podcast, my parents were pretty indulgent of me and my television watching, particularly on a Saturday night where, from the mid-70s onwards, I gradually persuaded them to let me stay up after Starsky and Hutch or Kojak, or whatever US detective show was on, to watch Match of the Day, given I'd become a complete football fanatic by the age of about seven or eight. If you remember, the late night news bulletin will be shown after the Saturday night cop show, and then we get Match of the Day. It's probably also worth reminding our younger listeners and others who may not remember that Match of the Day was about as close as we ever got to live football on TV. Apart from the FA Cup final, which was one of the few games that was ever broadcast live, so it was quite a big deal. As I watched Match of the Day, my parents would disappear and do the washing up or something. But then I noticed they would reappear towards the end of Match of the Day and then make sure I went to bed after the football show finished. What it took me a while to realise was that they were coming back to watch Parkinson and that only dawned on me when I tried to extend my late night and started to watch the show with them. So my personal appreciation of who Michael Parkinson was and what he did was gradual. But what I did notice very early on was that he had a unique ability to get people to open up and speak naturally which is a very rare talent and one which many modern chat show hosts don't have. There was a great article on this following the announcement of Michael Parkinson's death in The Guardian by the journalist Fiona Sturges, which looks at what made his approach so different. I suggest you look it up online, or on our Twitter, uh, stroke X, page, where I retweeted the article. Parkinson never lost the sense that he was a journalist first and a celebrity second, so wasn't looking to ingratiate himself with his guests, but to probe and push and get them to reveal something for their inner selves, which doesn't happen much in modern shows, where the interviewer has more of a cosy chat, I suppose, and actually giving the viewers something they didn't know. Personally, I don't want to see celebrities schmoozing each other as if they've just met over a drink at Soho House. I want to see them think a bit, and sometimes squirm. Parkinson managed to do this in such an effortless way, having gravitas, being largely polite to his guests, but never letting them slip off the hook. Now, I'm not going to pretend I remember all of the classic Parkinson interviews, and, like so many things, I've seen repeats of some of the best-known interviews many, many times. In fact, so many times, I don't remember which ones I saw live, as it were, and which I saw later on. But I thought it might be worthwhile running down a few of the best-known interviews from the Parkinson show, and try and remember what stood out. I've also asked my wonderful listeners, that's you, by the way, to come up with some favourite interviews, so thanks to all who's responded. And let's have a quick journey back in time to remember the classic Parkinson's. Michael Parkinson often joked that, in spite of his long and varied career in journalism and TV, that he would only be remembered for, as he put it, that bloody bird. We are, of course, referring to the famous interview with Rod Hull and Emu in 1976. Yes, Is it a male or female, Emu, this? Why don't you have a look for yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't know what to look back. I'm last week. Exactly. You're not going to say, are you? I You're all right, aren't you? Why is it so aggressive? It's not aggressive. Not <laughs> <laughs> all the time. Is yeah. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Rod and Emu crop up all through my childhood memories of television. To anyone who doesn't remember them, it's rather difficult to explain how it worked. Rod was a rather eccentric comic performer who was constantly accompanied by Emu, a large puppet of, well, an Emu. Emu said nothing, but was extremely naughty and prone to violent outbursts, in spite of Rod's efforts to control him. So chaos genuinely ensued when the pair were around, as in the Parkinson interview. What I love about it is that Michael Parkinson just manages to hold on and avoid getting really quite cross, especially when he's knocked off his seat and wrestled to the ground. Ever the professional, he went along with the whole thing, although clearly didn't particularly like it. Rod and Emy were already famous when they went onto the show and were to remain fixtures on children's TV into the 1980s and, just thinking about it, perhaps they'd need a future episode of this podcast dedicated to them. I'll add it to the list. Judging by what was written in the various obituaries I have read, Michael Parkinson's most celebrated interview was the first he had with Muhammad Ali in 1971, soon after his show had launched on the BBC. I have to admit that I didn't see it at the time, being four years old, but I have seen it on a number of occasions over the years, and I have watched it in full again recently while preparing for this podcast. It is a remarkable piece of television and I recommend that you find some time to watch it, as it has some incredible moments in it, where Ali is in full flight on boxing, issues of race and racial politics. He tries to put Parkinson down and tell him that he doesn't understand, as a white British man, what it's like as a black boxer with strongly held religious views. But rather than crumbling under pressure, Parkinson won't let Ali dominate him. And the result is sometimes combative, sometimes moving, and often funny in spite of the seriousness of the topics discussed. One thing which I did find quite shocking as a 21st century listener was the reaction of the audience who were clearly made nervous by some of the racial elements discussed and whose natural reaction was to laugh, even when Ali makes some pretty hard-hitting statements. Here's a short extract.
1: You don't fear for that? No, i really fear for that because I control it. See, I don't control the airplane or the pilot or what he's doing. And like uh, like when you're in a car and somebody's turning corners and you notice they take you kinda on the edge and you're watching. But when you behind the wheel it's not like that. Mm-hmm. See, so like I got the, when I'm in the ring, I'm handling it. And I don't worry about nobody being that good to really hurt me, see. <laughs> what about the other thing? Somebody say, shh, if you don't believe it, come down here and try it. <laughs> What about the other thing that that's, uh, could happen in boxing, the brain damage? Because as you said, I mean, Fraser was in uh, under-intensive. Yeah, uh... yeah, we checked on him. He's all right in was. They thought he might have some trouble. James Ellis was in a critical point at the end of the fight, and I pulled off of him. Most fighters are scared to say they lightened up because they call the fight's fixed, or they say you carried him. I tell them quick, but I got them. They can't do nothing about it because they always talk about fighters dying, how brutal it is, <clears throat> and they all remain to me a religious man, been in a brutal game and uh, could hurt somebody. And they say precautions should be taken. I think the best precaution, if they talk about gloves, should be bigger. The fighter should wear some type of head protection or face protection. I think the best caution is if a fella's winning a fight on points, he's got a man just about out. The guy's against the ropes and about gone. And he should not just try to hurt him just to satisfy the crowd or to make money. See, Ellis has got a family. He's an ex-friend of mine, and he wants to live, too. And we just, and it's really silly when you think about fighting. I look at other fighters fighting, I say, I must be a fool. Here are two men, like two roosters. You know them cockfights. They take two roosters, and they put them out, and they put knives on them, and the roosters are fighting each other, and they're not even mad, don't know each other, and just to please somebody. And here are two men in the ring fighting each other, and they're hitting each other, and they're bleeding, and they're fighting. What are they mad about? They're not mad about nothing. Just too, just a bunch of agitating, bloodthirsty people saying you can whoop him. He can whoop him. My man can whoop your man. All right, y'all, get in there and
0: fight. Powerful stuff. And it's hard to argue with Ali later in the interview when he says, I can talk all week on millions of subjects and you do not have enough wisdom to corner me on television. You are too small mentally to tackle me on nothing I represent. Wow. You don't get that on Graham Norton. Parkinson also had a policy of interviewing emerging talents and, in 1975, a young Glaswegian comedian who'd been growing a following as a result of his live stage shows was booked to appear on The Parkinson Show. How, how important was the, the, the childhood that you had to, to, to your source of humour? All important, I should imagine. It's In my act, you know, I, I spend about, uh, about two-thirds of my act talking about my childhood and various things that happened to me or to people around me. And a horrific thing happened to me one day. I was born in this tenement in Dover Street in Anderson in Glasgow, down at the dockside. And about six years ago, five years ago, I was at a party in the house of a fella called Andy Moyes, a folk singer. And we were drinking an awful lot. And in the morning, I had a terrible hangover, and I went over to his little sink at the window, and it looked right onto the street I was born. I was washing my hands, and the building I was born in fell down. (laughs) I thought they were demolishing the place and it was only the front, but you couldn't see that from where I was. Crash. <laughs> it summed up exactly how I felt it. I? I wish I'd born follow up. I thought it was the end of the world or something. Billy Connolly didn't waste the opportunity and during the interview told, what was for the time, a risque joke about a man murdering his wife, which I won't repeat here. The response from the audience was shock. Surely this sort of thing didn't appear on the BBC on a Saturday night. But the publicity and debate over that one joke propelled Connolly to national stardom, literally overnight. Billy Connolly tells the tale of flying back to Glasgow and getting off the plane and being applauded by everyone he saw as he walked through Glasgow airport, such was the impact of the interview. The two men became great friends as a result and Connolly holds the record for the most appearances on Parkinson's various chat shows with 15 appearances. One of my other personal favourites was from 1978, when Parkinson interviewed Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy. As regular listeners know, I was a huge fan of the puppets as a child, and I do remember watching this one as it was broadcast.
1: What we have to do, of course, is to ask, and we've not uh, done this yet, um, is to ask the question that everybody's asking, which is about how
0: Kermit your affair, if I can put it as strongly as that, is with uh, Miss Piggy. Now, now, now you're getting into very very touchy ground you see uh, there is there is no relationship between miss piggy and myself you know? there, there is none i mean now there is some of it on the screen and some people think that we have a relationship but i want you to know that that is on the screen only and there is there's nothing to that there is and i wish you wouldn't uh, refer to it anymore please oh all right then. All yes right. Awesome. yes because uh, there's there's really nothing between us and anything you may have heard about us in hotel rooms or any of that stuff. Just
1: <laughs> exist. Well, then, I mean, you won't mind, then, therefore, if I confess to you that I am madly in love with her, I mean, like the rest of the nation, I think she's totally adorable. I uh, think she's the most beautiful, you're in big trouble, then. sensational. <laughs> Why am I
0: in big trouble? Well, I just—you uh, just wait and see. All right. Well, I'm going to make a special introduction, in fact, to Miss B, because I uh, say I think she's so sensational. I mean, the really most beautiful beautiful creature that I've ever set eyes. And I really mean it. I am madly, madly. Would you welcome Miss Piggy? Kissy, 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 kissy. Kissy, kissy. Hello, Michael. Oh, no. <laughs> How are you? Oh, I'm well. Hi, <laughs> <Earth> frog. Again. <laughs> okay. Parkey plays it absolutely straight and helps deliver a truly memorable piece of TV history. It's estimated that Michael Parkinson interviewed around 2,000 people on his various shows on BBC and ITV, and others that listeners have mentioned as being their favourite guests include Paul McCartney. Incidentally, Parkinson appeared on the front cover of Wing's album Band on the Run, Alec Guinness, Peter Usnoff, Kenneth Williams, Dame Edna Everidge, And from more recent times, many of you have mentioned the interviews he did with Peter Kay, particularly on his final show when Peter brought along a few things to help celebrate. I brought a bag of treats, didn't I? Because it was your last show. I thought, you know, I thought we'd be having a laugh. Got party out here. I thought you'd had a big table, though. have only got that. There you are. you <laughs> <laughs> all kick our heels up a
1: bit. All right. Enjoy
0: ourselves, there you are. <laughs> Blow on that. Go on. Go on. <laughs> yes, that's what you want. The sight of Parky, Billy Connolly, David Beckham, and Sir David Attenborough all sat in a line wearing little party hats was quite surreal, I seem to remember. It's also worth mentioning, for the sake of balance, some of the interviews that didn't go so well. Anyone who has ever seen the interview with Meg Ryan will wince at the memory. She basically refuses to answer any questions after a rather fractious set of questions where, uncharacteristically, Parkey appeared to lose his temper. And at the end of the interview, Meg simply tells him to wrap it up, showing that the interview was at an end. There have also been several references made recently to the car crash of an interview he had with Helen Mirren, where he seemed to be suggesting that an attractive woman can't be taken seriously as a serious actress. Again, I suggest you watch the interview and make up your own mind on this. But in spite of a couple of blips, Michael Parkinson will always be remembered for his chat show and the way he redefined the genre in a way that no one's quite managed to do since. Lots have tried, but nobody's managed to get that balance between making guests feel at their ease and grilling them to the point that they become defensive. He had a rare gift, and one we are unlikely to see again. Aside from his chat show, Michael Parkinson did many other things. He was a very talented cricketer, and played alongside Dickie Bird and the young Geoffrey Boycott at one point. And, as a cricket fanatic... I was quite moved to see them reunited at this summer's Headingley Test match. He was also a leading agitator in the anti-apartheid movement and wrote a regular sports column for Anti-Apartheid News from 1965 onwards and was a vociferous critic of the MCC when it bowed to South African government pressure not to select Basil D'Oliveira in their party to tour South Africa. Eventually the MCC bowed to pressure and South Africa cancelled the tour – but Parkinson continued the fight until democracy came to South Africa in the 1990s. He was also a founding sponsor of the Anti-Nazi League, which was set up in 1977. So behind the chat, there really was some real steel. Parkinson was also one of the so-called Famous Five, who formed the public face of TVAM when it announced the first breakfast TV franchise in the UK in the early 1980s. Alongside Angela Rippon, David Frost, Anna Ford and Robert Key. The five were beset with problems in the run-up to the channel launch date in 1983. They were all shareholders of the business, but, almost inevitably, once their current employers found out they were setting up a new TV franchise, some of them, like Angela Rippon and Anna Ford, lost their jobs. Parkinson held on to his, as the BBC thought they might persuade him to stay, but it all made the anticipated launch of the new station a bit fraught. Additionally, due to an administrative error, the stars found out that they were being paid vastly different salaries, ranging from £60,000 a year for Angela Rippon to £250,000 a year each for David Frost and Parkinson. So before a single broadcast had been made, the signs were not good. Added to this, the BBC then beat them to it by launching Breakfast Time weeks before TVAM's Good Morning Britain first hit the screens. And then when it did, there was a bigger problem. Nobody actually watched the show, preferring to tune into Selena Scott and Frank Boff presenting a news based show rather than a group of presenters who seemed, well, to be honest, a bit full of their own importance. By April, after only a couple of months of broadcasting, the station was near financial collapse, and, as part of a major restructure, Rippon and Ford were unceremoniously axed. By all accounts, Michael Parkinson tried to argue in support of his colleagues, but it was too late. By the end of that year, Anne Diamond and Nick Owen, helped by Roland Ratt, had brought TVAM back from the brink, and the famous five were no more. Frost and Parkinson stayed on, but Parkey eventually left the station in 1984. In 1986, Michael Parkinson took over as the presenter on the BBC's long-running Desert Island Disc Show, following the death of its creator, Roy Plumley. It seemed like a great choice, but listeners disagreed. Parkinson tried to bring his chat show style Inquisitor to the radio show and some of the guests were a bit uneasy with that, as was apparently Plumley's widow who owned the rights to the show. Desert Island Disc was meant to be a bit of gentle self-indulgence and reminiscence over a few records, not a chance to be given the third degree. He lasted two years before Sue Lawley was given the role. He also hosted a TV show which I remember fondly from my university days, My roommate and I hired a TV, and yes, we did hire it from Radio Rentals, and at 9.25 every morning, Michael Parkinson appeared on our screen to provide, well, what should we say, a bit of intellectual stimulus to a pair of willing students.
1: Give us Give us Give us With
0: but in spite of all his other roles, including hosting the infamous live Ghostwatch Paranormal documentary in 1992, we will always remember Michael Parkinson most fondly for his interviews. From Muhammad Ali to Peter Kaye, via Rod Hull and Emu, he made himself the king of the genre, and, as I said earlier, we are unlikely to see anyone like him ever again. Thank you, Sir Michael Parkinson. We will miss you. I hope you enjoyed our brief tribute to one of British TV's greatest talents. Let us have your own Parkinson memories. As always, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com, search for us on your favourite social media, or you can simply email me, Oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Join us next time for the second edition of our new quiz, and in two weeks' time for our next regular episode. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, reviewers, and raters, wherever you get your podcasts from. All the best. And join me again soon for more from my 70s TV childhood.